This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning, Trinity. We are continuing our sermon series in Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 today. Uh, And if you'll remember, uh, the last couple weeks, we've been talking and exploring the idea of how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And last week, we looked about how God does these things in far more normal, mundane, regular ways than we would like. That we want huge displays of spiritualism, but that's not how God most regularly works. We're filled with the Spirit in the mundane, normal, regular. So last week we looked at marriage. Uh, And for those of you who are married, there is a God-given calling to conform your marriages to a particular pattern, but it's not just commands to those that you are married, it's commands to instruct us that marriage is just a picture of a more true marriage a capital M marriage. And we looked at that last week about how uh, living faithfully into conformity with that uh, not only requires being filled with, the, the, filled with the Holy Spirit, but fills us with the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at parenting. Now I'm going to give the same kind of warning, a very similar warning that I did last week. Uh, if you are not a parent, uh, don't just check out and be like, man, bad day to come to church. Uh, this has nothing to do with me. Uh, all of God's Word is profitable for our teaching. And I think what we're going to find is that just like marriage, the parent-child relationship instructs us about something profound, points to something greater than ourselves. It's it's an image of a relationship, of a more true relationship. So we're supposed to conform our parent-child relationship. And then the second reason I would say you can't ignore it is because the bulk of these passages, uh, the verses today that we're going to be reading, is addressed to children, and all of us are children of someone. All of us have to hear these commands in some regards. Now, although uh, God fills us with the Spirit in these kind of regular mundane ways, like the three that Paul gives as examples, uh, we looked at marriage last week, we're looking at parenting this week, and we're going to be looking at work the week after. I just got a question for you. These don't seem like profoundly spiritual things, right? In fact, they don't seem like profoundly Christian things. You would find these things anywhere and everywhere and throughout all time. They seem almost awe-spiritual. But out of all of the three examples that Paul chooses to use, uh, marriage, parenting, and work, I think that you would find that even within our culture, kind of, uh, or or cultures without the Word of God, you would find um, specifically childbirth spoken of with a sort of spiritualism, mysticism, despite its profound trauma. All cultures everywhere kind of attach this, like, miraculous nature to it. You can also see this in other places in our culture, like why daddy and mommy problems persist so deeply within our psyches, why we have so many songs, poems, movies, and arts focused on this relationship. If you were to look at the animal kingdom, you would not see the same sort of reflection on pain, agony, sorrow, or joy. You do not see the same sort of reflection in their reproduction. You would not see this sort of reflection and struggle of the discipline and admonition of their children. You would not see the same sort of wrestling with the fact that children eventually leave home. Humans are not just bodies. We are bodies and spirits. 
And therefore, in human reproduction, there is something spiritual at work, something that is inherently beyond simple biology. There's a new person, a new image bearer of God, which also bears our resemblance. You might say that for all of our human lives, parenting and being parented are one of the most challenging things we will ever do. Now, ironically, being parented, we usually like capstone at like 18 or something like that. So we like, we, we suffer that, that difficult part of our lives, uh, kind of unbeknownst to us that it's so difficult. But once we're liberated from it, we're like, man, that was great. Until we go back to visit our parents again. And then we go, oh man, I just, I can't do this. Like living in my parents' house is like, I just, I, I can't handle it anymore. I've been independent. We become parents and we realize how difficult uh, our parents had it sometimes. I had a conversation uh, recently with a woman at, at a, a party that my wife's relatives were hosting. So I'd, I'd never met this woman before, a friend of the family. Uh, and as we were introduced, uh, I was introduced as a pastor. And so she stops as, as soon as she can, kind of give me a lunch. She goes, hey, pastor, I've got a question for you. What's wrong with this generation? <laughs> and you know, I'm sitting there holding my little plate of food at the party and I kind of had to chuckle and go, well, I need to ask a few more questions. Like, what exactly does she mean by this? And what she meant was what she was really asking was why her now adult children were so entitled. Why she felt that they could take and take and take from her and care for her so little. And I, I don't, you know, mean to uh, shorten her story or make it simplistic. But what I was able to hint at with her, but what I'll tell you a little bit more directly is that her children grew up to do exactly what she taught them to do. Her children, all, of the, all three of them, were unbelievably successful. One, there was actually a game on the TV in the background, a volleyball game, and it was a D1 school. I don't remember which one because I don't really understand college sports. Um, but she was playing volleyball. She was on the TV. She was a tennis pro, not the sport she was playing on the TV, already a tennis pro, and set to graduate with honors. Another was a high-level telecommunications executive, Another is a specialist at a prestigious hospital. But two out of the three of her children still used her credit card. All were relatively spiteful if she uh, didn't assent to pay for something. And almost none of them came to visit her unless she was the one to pay for it. Now, learning a little bit more about her marriage and work, it was clear to me that this was a borderline cats in the cradle situation, if you know the song. But to summarize it this way, success was their God. And they worshiped faithfully. Their children did exactly what they taught them to do. But her spirit as a mother felt the dissonance. You guys know what dissonance is? It's like when a song doesn't quite match up, like the chord is off and it kind of rings wrong in our brains. Her spirit felt the dissonance. She had an idea of what her uh, life with her adult children was going to be like when we were all so successful. And yet the reality didn't quite match up. Their parent-child relationship was lacking a spiritual foundation that gave it strong roots. Today, we're going to be exploring what these foundations look like, what is necessary. And we're going to see that both to be the parent and to be the child is going to require being filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like last week, uh, my outline might be a little bit simplistic. We're just going to follow Paul straight through. We're going to look at his commands to children. We're going to look at his commands to parents. And then we're going to see what we learn about the true parent-child relationship and how we ought to conform our lives to that image. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, but I'm actually going to read verse 
18 of chapter 5 first, because it kind of sets uh, the, the tone for these three sermons that we're going to have, the third one being next week. So chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So today we're looking at the spiritual foundations of a healthy parent-child relationship, and we're going to start by looking at the commands that God gives to children. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Just a couple of notes. Uh, first, we should note that Paul wrote this letter to a church in Ephesus, and as he expected it to be read in front of the church, he expected children to be present. They were able to hear and understand and apply what was being said. We should note that it is often simply assumed in the Bible that children will be in the church service with adults. Paul addresses them as moral agents capable of heeding the instructions to obey. The Bible doesn't often directly address children. And I think that actually teaches us something profound. Because I think it's something we all kind of instinctively know, and it's that children uh, often learn most by imitating than they, are, they do by direct instruction. If they see you praying they will pray. If they see you singing, they will sing. If they see you conform your life to the gospel commands, they will do the same. Now here at Trinity, we make promises to one another when, when we go through baptism, whether that's infant baptism or in children or even in adulthood. We make promises that we're going to point one another to Jesus, that in some sense we're going to assist parents in raising up their children and so this command to kind of uh, set an example to children in our church service goes to all of us. Are we all praying? Are we all singing? Are we all trying to conform our lives to the image of Christ? Because our children are watching. And they're not just watching their parents, although they may watch their parents most closely. They're also watching you people who said promises, people who said we will, people who said we're part of this covenant community that's trying to live out following Jesus together. We would do well to consider how we include children to imitate our own faith. And there's, there's a reason why here at Trinity we don't extend our ch um, children's church to 12, 18, or 22, or whatever you think uh, uh, arrives at moral agency. We try to bring our children in here a little bit sooner. We want them to see all of us living out our faith. Now, although the word refers most directly to young children, and young children, if you're in the room, I'm going to be talking to you in a second, so just hold on. I'm going to talk most directly to you. You can still listen to me always, but, you know. It also refers to adult children, just like we use the word children to refer to adult children. You never stop being someone's child. Your parents might be alive and healthy right now, and you're still called to obey them. Your parents may be absent. They may have passed away. Your parents may have been violent and dangerous and unsafe to be around. You may have even been removed from the presence of your parents by others. And there's still this call in Scripture to obey 
honor and respect to your parents. This is a difficult command in some of those situations to live out. It's a command that requires a particular sort of living into Christ-likeness that requires us to forgive when we've been harmed, especially as adult children who may harbor deep cynicism and anger towards our parents. But it doesn't mean that they're necessarily safe to be around or that we need to bring our children around our unsafe adult parents. There may still be boundaries in our relationship, and yet the heart issue at play is how our disposition towards our parents. You see, the, Paul, the word that Paul uses for obey here is actually stronger than the word to submit that he used previously. If you were here last week talking about wives to husbands. And that's almost shocking to our ears because submission sounds uh, harsher, right? Uh, but obedience is actually the stronger word. But regardless, both uh, obedience and submission are regulated by the same phrase, which is in the Lord. Their children are to obey in the Lord. So I'm just going to repeat the same thing that I said last week. Obedience cannot mean obedience to that which the Lord prohibits. Obedience cannot mean obedience to fail to do what the Lord commands. So children, you are supposed to obey your parents in the Lord. And I'm just going to say here, Paul's not going to address every caveat here, and in some sense he's assuming a Christian family relationship. As soon as those dynamics are not... um, are are messed with. The Bible addresses those in some other passages, not here, uh, but things become immensely more complicated on what obedience, honor, and respect actually look like. I said the same thing last week. But we also recognize, uh, as we're going to get to in a second, uh, parents compelling their children to obey is a serious task. Spousal abuse is, of course, evil. It's evil. But there's a particular evil that is abusing a child. Again, we're going to get to instructions to parents in a second. But suffice it to say that Paul is not giving every caveat here, but is commanding children in good faith to obey their parents. Parents, we should hear that as a command from God and act accordingly. In general, in all things being equal, children ought to and uh, obey, honor, and respect their parents because, verse 1, it is right. There is a rightness when children obey. Okay, so now, ch- children in the room, if that's generally who you respond, you hear children in that, you're like, that's me. You, you guys in here? Children. Children in the room. Here's what God says. Here's what God says. God says it is good and right for you to obey your parents. And Paul is actually going to say in other places that disobedience is a mark of a hard heart, someone who is separated from God. Part of your duty to God is obeying your parents. And this has something uh, important, because I think, honestly, when, when I got in trouble as a child, and I remember getting in trouble as a child, we've all disobeyed our parents. We all know that that's true. That doesn't mean it's right. It's just we've all done it. We're usually forced to apologize to our parents, right? We have to say, I'm sorry. But we sometimes forget that we also have to say sorry to God. And kids, I would actually encourage you, when you know you've disobeyed your parents, try to say sorry to God first. When you storm away and you slam the door and you're in your room, And before you've had a chance to say sorry to your parents, actually pray to God and go, God, I know I've disobeyed my parents. Please forgive me. Paul is talking to you, children, as able to obey by God's Holy Spirit to obey your parents. But verses 2 and 3 actually explain something even more amazing, kids. Hold on. He says that the command to obey comes with blessing. 
It comes with a promise that it might go well with us and that we might live long in the land. And if you were to go back to your Old Testament and flip through and you read this command uh, that we read a little bit this morning, honor your father and your mother, um, it comes with this promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But I think sometimes we would read that and we'd be like, okay, well, he's talking about the Israelites because the Israelites are the ones that had the land, right? So it's like he's speaking to them. If they honor their father and mother, then they're going to live long in the land. But actually what Paul is saying is that through Jesus, these promises extend to us who are not Israelites in whatever land we find ourselves because Jesus isn't just the king of Israel. He's king of the whole world. So this is one of those rare instances in the Bible where God does affirm the fact that obeying your parents does come with some sort of material blessing. But I think it's actually deeper than that. I think it's also spiritual. I want to talk about both of these real quick. So kids, I know. Are you still hanging with me or no? Have you checked out? I know it's hard. I know. There's some material blessing. There's a rightness that our world, even non-Christians, can recognize about people who obey their parents. The world can recognize that someone who attempts to honor and obey their parents, even their less than perfect parents, is someone with a character that is trustworthy and dependable. Those who disobey their parents, who are flippant about it and do not care, it makes the world go, well, if they can't even respect their parents, am I sure that they're going to be able to respect me? If that's how they treat the people closest to them, how do they treat the people that they don't care about at all? Obedience to parents actually will probably result in some material blessings in this world. Opportunities and recognition among those who see goodness and rightness, even if they reject the king of goodness and rightness. But there's also, and maybe more importantly, a spiritual blessing. Uh, and, and kids, this, this one's important uh, if you can grasp now, but I think it'll speak mostly to the adults in this room who are also children. Those who have attempted to obey and honor their parents throughout their entire lives have clean consciences. When the time comes for their parents to pass away, whether it is sudden or long expected, they may mourn what their relationship could have been, but instead of having the burden also of forgiving themselves, they only have the burden of forgiving their parents. Being filled with the Holy Spirit through a life of obedience has caused children who obey their parents cause their life to go well for them, all their life to be full and long instead of short and full of strife. They're able to operate in the world saying, I know that I was wronged and in Jesus I've been able to forgive them. Or I've made my relationship right with my parents in the ways that I've disobeyed. I could say more here, but, but we really got to get to parents. And I could talk all day, and you guys can't stay here all day. So now we've looked at what it's, uh, why being parented requires being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's get to parenting itself. Verse 4, fathers is how it's addressed. So a note here on fathers. Verses 1 and 2 have already acknowledged that children are to obey their parents, both mother and father. Verse 1, honor their father and mother. Verse 2, both parents have responsibilities to parent. However, given the context of last week's sermon, which were the verses right before ours, and the probable statistical tendency of fathers to provoke their children, Paul addresses fathers uniquely here. But more than that, I want to give a little bit of cultural background. See, uh, in the first century, fathers were assumed to have the particular job of defining, representing, and defending their family name. But the household, including child-rearing, would have been left to the mother or possibly even servants until the time that a son should apprentice or a daughter should be married. If a father had a disobedient child who misrepresented the family name, 
you could be sure that there would be swift and severe punishment. But this would not necessarily be discipline because it was devoid of relationship, it was devoid of instruction and admonition, it was often retributive. Don't you dare malign our name in that way ever again. Fathers were seen as the final responsibility for enforcing the family name, but not necessarily responsible for getting their hands dirty in the day-to-day tasks. Paul's saying the opposite. In our passage, fathers are addressed specifically not because the father is solely responsible, but Paul is saying, even you fathers, even you fathers are responsible for the discipline and instruction of your children, the day-by-day messiness of screwing up parenting your child and making it right. One commentator said it this way, it's not good enough that fathers are satisfied with an attempt to parent. Fathers are responsible to parent, not just try. Specific command given to fathers, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger. The word for provoke is most often used in the Bible to describe what Israel did to God. Uh, If you know any of the story of the Old Testament, Israel kept provoking God. God never provokes Israel because God is the perfect father. But Paul is saying here that fathers have a tendency to provoke their children. And here's the thing about the provocation. God was right to be angry with Israel. Right? He was provoked. Children are right to be angry with their parents when they are provoked. Now, I'm about to read a list of ways that we can provoke our children. Uh, I think I just want to make a comment on the forefront. Uh, For some of you in this room, just reading this passage enough is a heavy burden. You know the ways that you provoke your children. You don't need to be reminded. And so I'm about to read through a list, and it's, it's just going to feel really heavy. Some of you need the list. <laughs> Some of us need to be reminded of the ways that we provoke our children and be like, oh, yeah, that is pro- provocation. Wherever you are in this list, I would encourage you to hold on and remember. Actually, I'm going to give you a preview right now. Remember that all of what I'm about to say is conforming to the pattern of the true parent-child relationship. A father who loves us perfectly, despite our sins, and welcomes us back, and in fact runs to us when we recognize our sinfulness, and welcomes us back into the family name. How do we provoke our children? The first and most obvious is the ways that we chide a child for failures that we provoked. And you might ask yourself, does God set you up for failure? Does God ask you to do things that you are not able to do? Another way that we provoke children is by rolling out and showing them every wrong and misstep that they make at every single turn. Does God highlight everything wrong that you do all at once? And if you're not sure about that, I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is no. We provoke our children when we instruct through cynicism and sarcasm instead of pedagogically. I know these may be big words, but we we teach our children uh, to look at the world with a sense of despair instead of created by God's beauty. We can't get over our own problems, and so we take it out on our children. We are hypocritical. We demand submission when we submit to no one. And in fact, every time an authority tries to exert something over us, we rebel as fast as possible. 
Another way we're hypocritical, we require self-control by throwing tantrums ourselves. The child's not exercising self-control, and so we scream at them. We provoke our children when we push our children to succeed at something so that our self-worth may be affirmed. We punish our children so that we might be more comfortable. Does the noise that they're making really require discipline, or are we just uncomfortable? We demand respect at the expense of their dignity. We shame them into obedience by comparing them with their siblings. We guilt trip them about how they're making us feel. We give them silent treatments. We deny their worth. One commentator said, a home that is ruled by guilt undermines biblical obedience. God's household is not ruled by guilt. The struggle is, I think, that some of us think that this is how God operates with us. I'd encourage you to go back to Scripture and see that that is not true. Now, I wonder if this list pains you as much as it pains me. Almost every single one of these I have lived out recently. Much like husbands loving their wives like Jesus loves, parents are supposed to love their children the way that God loves. And if we give that any amount of thought, any amount of reflection, we would realize that we are not doing great. We might be marginally better than our pagan neighbors who are estranged from God's love, but we call ourselves Christians, children of the living God. We claim to know the depths of God's love for us. Our parenting ought to look different. It ought to smell different. It ought to be full of the Holy Spirit. But how are we supposed to do this? Because let's be honest here. Uh, Paul gives like three verses to kids here, and he gives one to parents. But I encourage you to say that the rest of the book of Ephesians that preceded this is setting the stage for the motivation for why parents can do this. If we just went back to the beginning of chapter 5, in verse 1, here's what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Your beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Christian parents cannot be insecure about God's love for them. They must be so rooted in God's love for them, so saturated with the story of Jesus and him for us, that they, operate, they never operate out of their insecurities. Now, of course, when we do, parents, when we operate out of our insecurities, because we are beloved children of a perfect father, we can run back to God and ask for forgiveness. Just like our children ought to run to God to ask for forgiveness first, we also not only have to ask our children for forgiveness, we have to ask God to forgive us in the ways that we have misparented our children. There's another command given at the end of this verse. It says, to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Some older translations will translate that the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And theologically speaking, the command here uh, is almost identical to the command given to husbands uh, that we looked at last week. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And we looked at there that that meant uh, dying to their own self-promotion, their own name, their own wealth, their own self-advancement for the benefit of their own flesh, their wives. And so you could just apply that here. What does is, what is the nurture, what does the discipline and instruction mean that parents are supposed to do? They're supposed to die to their own self-promotion, their own name, their own wealth, and their own comfort, their own self-advancement for the sake of their children. There's a number of ways that we could apply this and what this might look like. I'm, I'm going to focus on uh, two as far as like instruction and then also discipline. Uh, just know that there's more here. 
I'm just going to pick one. Um, one thing I tend to see, uh, at least in myself as a parent, I'll speak for me, uh, is that there are certain children, you know, I only have two, one's, one's quite young, but there, there, there are certain children that, that like jive in certain disciplinary uh, situations that fit well with my natural disposition as a parent, the natural things that I understand about God's relationship with me. And in those instances, I parent, I would, I would hope to say very well, if I can say that humbly, but I, but I respond appropriately. However, there are other situations, right, that touch on other things, things that I have not reflected on appropriately about God's relationship with me, where I parent very poorly. Some of our children are more difficult for us to parent than others. Please understand that the difficulty in parenting, the the problem is never the child. The child may have problems of their own. They may be working through things, but the difficulty with parenting, the problem is not them. They are not the problem child. It is your duty, parents. It is your responsibility to instruct and discipline them in the Lord. You are the adult. You are the parent. You are the one called by God and given this person. God gave you this child in this home. In in, in some sense, this this child does not belong to you. They're not your property. They belong to God, and they're ultimately answerable to God for their lives, as we just saw. God calls them to obedience to you. And yet you, as their parent, are tasked with the job to find ways to parent them. And you, as Christian parents, have the Holy Spirit to cry out to. Because it's hard. Here's why it's hard. We don't actually know our children's spirits. God knows everything about us. He knows exactly how to parent us at any given moment. Why? Because he knows us through and through, everything about us. Parents, we assume we know a lot about our children. We can, like, peg them. We know exactly who they are. But that's not actually how it works. I wonder if we asked the Holy Spirit to reveal us something about our children, if we would be surprised and delighted by what he showed us. Furthermore, there are times when we need to lay down our own assumptions of what correct parenting means, just parenting from the gut. I'm particularly... um, vulnerable to this, uh, to learn to parent each child as unique individuals from God. Uh, God doesn't um, take a break a bruised reed, right? He knows each individual person. But discipline and instruction does, in fact, mean that there will be discipline. Now, I'm not here to tell you that there's a correct way to discipline your child, but the Bible will say that Proverbs, in Proverbs, that those who fail to discipline their children hate their children. It's popular in our culture right now to believe that there's like natural consequences we should let our children find, and sometimes that's, that's fine parenting, but they basically say, you shouldn't use your authority in the parent-child relationship. Uh, you should just let the, the child figure out naturally what's going to happen. The Bible doesn't assume uh, that love would be devoid in authority, or that love would be devoid by a parent-child relationship working appropriately, or that love would be devoid from discipline. In fact, um, I would encourage you in your discipline to look at how the Lord disciplines. The Lord loves us, and he says he will not fail to discipline us. Now, there's a couple of notes here. Um, There's some of you in this room to whom discipline comes rather easy. It is kind of a natural response for you. Uh, It probably wasn't misused in your life. You see the benefits of it, how it gave you structure and rigor, and you say, and you're quick to discipline. 
uh, in many ways that might be a blessing from the Lord. In other ways, you are tasked with actually holding up your disciplinary procedures to the Word of God and to say, is this is what is required in this situation. There are some of you in this room to whom discipline is a scary thing. You hesitate at all costs. And again, I would encourage you the same thing, to hold it up to the Word of God and say, how does God discipline? And to humbly and by His power discipline your children. Not out of our insecurities, but out of the security of resting in God's love. This discipline and instruction happens in the Lord. There is an appropriate instruction and discipline of children that leads back to the most true story. All discipline and instruction ought to eventually lead to in the Lord. It ought to point to Jesus. Children will probably do exactly what you instruct them to do. Now, to be sure, they will often do the opposite of your words. That's not really what I'm talking about. But they'll do exactly what you worship. If you worship money, they probably will. If you worship success, they probably will. If you worship respect, they probably will. If you worship winning, they probably will. If you worship safety, they probably will. If you worship fear, they probably will. Now, to be sure, some children reject the religion of their parents, but most, even if reacting negatively to the religion of their parents, still live by the religion of their parents. And so again, the question comes to conformity to a particular pattern. Do you obey the Lord like you expect your children to obey you? Do you discipline and instruct your children the way that the Lord disciplines and instructs you? In your worship and study and dedication of how much God loves you, do you translate that into how much you love your children? And in conforming your life to this pattern of His love, I'll think that you'll find that even in parenting, even in obeying your parents, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, here's the crazy thing about being filled with the Holy Spirit, and this was true with marriages. You're not filled with the Holy Spirit by being a perfect parent. That's not what Paul is saying. Like he's withholding the Spirit in order for you uh, to prove that you're worthy. He's actually saying you have to be, to be the parent that's filled with the Holy Spirit. You have to be so dependent upon the Holy Spirit that it's going to feel a little bit like dying. It's going to feel a little bit like following a pattern of Jesus. But I think that you'll find that even there we might find resurrection. Even there you might find in your desperate need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you'll find a desperate dependence upon the Holy Spirit where He will not fail you. Now I do want to acknowledge this is not a bulletproof measure for having perfect relationships with children. It's not. There are in fact plenty of biblical examples of people who strove to live in dependence on the Spirit who are estranged from their parents and or their children. But even in the long months and years of struggling through parenting and being parented, in the middle of that dissonance, time and time again, our dependence upon the Holy Spirit means that in our conforming to the pattern of Jesus, we will find harmony. Jesus is the one who is working all things together for his glory and our good. Jesus is the one who will wipe away every tear. Jesus is the one who will make all things new. Jesus was the perfect child to the perfect father relationship. And what he purchased for us was participation in this relationship ourselves. So that we no longer have to depend on how to obey our parents or have to depend upon how to know how to parent just from our own experiences in our own broken family systems. But we get to look to a better one.
and even in our broken, finite attempt to parent in these ways, we'll find that it points to the most true parenting relationship there ever was. And we'll be overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. Living a life of repentance before your children is living a life of worship before your children. A life lived in conformity to the true and good King. And in a life oriented around worship, where even something as normal and as mundane and seemingly awe-spiritual as parenting is involved, we are still proclaiming God's name in everything that we do. Proclaiming God's name in how we respond every single time. Proclaiming God's name in how we ask for forgiveness. Proclaiming our dependence upon the most true story there ever was. Now, living this life of proclamation requires a particular kind of nourishment. And Jesus actually said that this table was going to nourish us towards this spiritual fulfillment of the things that we're called because we are actually insufficient on our own. We are insufficient on our own to obey these commands that Paul has given us as parents or as children. And so we are to come and conform our lives to a broken body and shed blood to say only through him and only by his power can I do these things. The night that Jesus was betrayed when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. This is the most true story, that we would be invited to a family meal that we have no business being at, and that we would ingest this love into our very bodies so that we might live it out into the world through our marriages, through our parenting, through our work, and whatever God calls us to do. Those that partake of this meal are the ones who have committed to conform their lives to this particular pattern of death and resurrection in Jesus Christ, of saying that his story is the most true story and that I am going to conform every aspect of my life to it. If this is not true for you, we'd ask you not to partake of this meal this morning because Jesus gives a warning that to partake of this when an outward reaction, when it's not an inward reality, is dangerous for you. And so we'd invite you to heed that warning and not partake. Stay at your seats. Uh, utilize the prayer in our bulletin. Um, and if you would like to conform your life to the image of Christ, be baptized, become a member of our church, um, and talk to myself, Kyle, or any of our staff members, we'd be happy to help make that happen. Uh, we'd love to have you join our community here. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. Uh, we can go to our two, two serving stations actually right here and over here. Uh, the gluten-free option is available over there as well as the regular bread option. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice uh, at, at both tables. Um, so please take that according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Our good and heavenly Father, we are needy and hungry children. And as we come to this family table... We ask that you would empower us by your spirit to live into the family name because we have been purchased by the body and blood of our older brother, Jesus. We ask that you would spiritually nourish us through this act, this normal, mundane, regular act of bread and wine, that you would fill us with your spirit to do that which you have commanded, to obey our parents and to parent like you do. And I ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.